it's such a critical time when we're talking about voting rights and attacks on black people that are about diminishing rights and keeping people from voting and not allowing people to organize and doing whatever it takes. And that's what we're seeing Republicans do to maintain their power. And of course, a lot of that's about guns. Carol Anderson writes about, studies, all of these things. She is the Charles Howard Candler Professor of African American Studies at Emory University, and she comes on our program often. She has a new book, The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America, focusing in on guns and focusing in on how the ability to get guns and the laws in this country affect black people, people of color in disproportionate ways. And Carol Anderson has studied voting rights extensively as well. And her last book, White Rage, uh, really laid out everything we're seeing happening right now uh, in terms of the way that now White supremacists are organizing, and the Trump world has embraced them, and the insurrection happened, and now they're talking about coups and everything else. So I'm glad that we're going to have her with us for much of this hour, as <laughs> we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> Carol Anderson, welcome back. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Uh, it, it's, it's really just uh, this time, and of course, Joe mm. Biden in Tulsa. Um, mm. marking that one-year anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre, which the vast majority of Americans didn't have any idea happened because it's been hidden from history. There's so much uh, that is going on and so much that you have uh, shined a light on and that, that you know about. So uh, I really want to talk to you about all of this. Uh, your Your book, though, let's start with the book because it is – a powerful and important look at how uh, guns and gun violence affect this country and, of course, uh, affect uh, people when it comes to the issue of race and how it's used to um, disproportionately harm people of color. Talk a little bit about what made you decide to focus in on race and guns in America? Um, it was the killing of Philando Castile um, in Minnesota, where here was a black man who had been pulled over by the police. The police asked to see his ID. Philando Castile follows NRA guidelines and alerts the officer that he has a licensed weapon with him. Um, and so this is a legal weapon. And the police officer starts shooting and kills Philando Castile. So we have a black man killed for having a legal weapon, and he's not threatening anybody. He just has it. Mm -hmm. And then you have this virtual silence of the NRA. 
um, with the killing of Philando Castile, the virtual silence. Um, they issue, eventually issue what I call a non-statement statement. Oh, we believe everybody, regardless of race, creed, national origins, that us should have the right to, um, you know, bear arms. Uh, that doesn't deal with the fact that Philando Castile was gunned down. And this was an mm-hmm. NRA that had been absolutely vociferous about what had happened at Ruby Ridge, what had happened at Waco, and what was happening with Clyde and Bundy. Um, just really, um, you know, calling federal officers jackbooted thugs um, for, for um, the gun battles that had happened at Ruby Ridge and at Waco. And but silence when you have a black man killed, and I and so journalists were asking, well, don't black people have Second Amendment rights? And I thought, Lord, that's a great question. Let me go find out. And it sent me back into the 17th century. Right, and of course, the book, the Second, uh, the focus, uh, the Second Amendment, uh, and race and guns. In a Fatally Unequal America, everyone listening, that is the book, and you should read it, the second. The history of the Second Amendment, we learn about it in school, um, but we get a very very distinct kind of um, take on it. Uh, We hear that it was crafted to allow militia to take up guns against the British— you dig in deeper into the origins of the Second Amendment and the legacy today. Tell us more of, about, uh, as you say, the right to a militia was actually a move to combat slave revolts and keep the South mollified. Yes, and so the narrative that we often get about the militia is the one about they took on the British um, and they helped defeat the British and that they're also there to stop domestic tyranny. But the actuality of it is that they their record was really spotty in the war of independence. Um, and it drove George Washington crazy that you could not rely upon the militia to fight or to show up. Um, and and so in terms of fending off a professional army, the militia really wasn't really good at that. Um, in terms of domestic tyranny, you had a Shays Rebellion right before the Constitutional Convention. And Shays Rebellion were a group of white men who took up arms um, and, and because they were angry about a taxation policy and the seizure of their lands for non-payment and they were headed to the armory in massachusetts uh, to get more weapons and the state couldn't rely upon the militia to 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 clamp down on shay's rebellion instead you had the militia that were going over some members of the militia were joining shay's rebellion Mm-hmm. And it took the it took uh, the merchants in Boston to finance a mercenary army and mercenary force to put down Shay's rebellion. So that thing about domestic tyranny, not so much. What the militia was really good at was quelling slave revolts, keeping black people um enslaved, under arms, in check. Um, When they would rise up to fight for their freedom, the militia was there to put those uprisings down. And you had in the the ratification 
convention in Virginia, this massive debate about the militia, because James Madison, who's also from Virginia and one of the architects of the Constitution, had the the put into the Constitution that the federal government would have the control over the arming and the organizing of the militia. And that sent terror through the anti-federalists in Virginia, because what they saw was that you could not count upon the federal government. This is what they believed. You could not count upon the federal government to send the militia into Virginia if there was a massive slave revolt. You could not count on them because they had folks in there from like Pennsylvania and like Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so and, and as Patrick Henry, who was one of the anti-federalists, said, you know, the North detest slavery. Um, and, and George Mason was clear, we will be left defenseless. Mm-hmm. And and they were putting pressure on Madison. Um, and what that pressure led to was the crafting of the Bill of Rights and against the, the specter of, of the anti-federalists pushing for a new constitutional convention. Mm-hmm. And this that was is, the last thing that Madison wanted. It's such an important history. Uh, and, you know, this idea that, that people have, the impression that the Second Amendment was about protecting against tyranny and preserving individual rights, how did that come to dominate uh, the conversation instead? Um, I think that is a narrative that was born out of um, the gun rights battles that we have here in the U.S., um, the, the, the skewing of our histories um, that erases the power of slavery and racism, and the need to to make the Second Amendment venerable, to venerate it, to, to give it this hallowed ground um, so that um, discussions about the Second, discussions about what it really means and what it really does uh, becomes off limits because this is, is – it's venerated to the point where, you know, this is part of our founding fathers. It's swaddled in the flag uh, with all of the amber waves of grain happening mm-hmm, in the background. Mm-hmm, right. Um, that, that veneration then erases over this powerful history of anti-blackness that is embedded in the Second Amendment, the fear of black people the fear that black people are dangerous, that they are a threat, that you must have white men under arms in order to keep black people under control. So if that's what it was designed for, but then the narrative is created that it's about individual rights and every American's right to bear arms, it would become problematic then as black people get rights uh, as the years go on because then, well, they should have the right to bear arms as well. <laughs> so you get into the, um, y- you know, the, the, the massive uh, ways that black Americans were stopped from getting access to guns uh, that, that, you know, go back to the 1700s, but up to more modern times, uh, even in contradiction to this narrative. Um, absolutely. So, um, and I'm going to start with after the Civil War, you had um, 
the thing called the Black Codes being implemented in the South by these neo-Confederate governments. And the Black Codes did many things, but one of them was to forbid Black people from having weapons. It was a way to say they must be disarmed from the guns that they carried in the Civil War. And and this was part of the massive battle of, of uh, that led to a massive bloodshed in the South as these paramilitary groups, um, these domestic terrorist groups, um, rained down on black folks to disarm them and put them back in their place. Um, you had moving through um, the... When when African Americans would defend themselves against a, 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 an attack um, by a white mob, um, the response of the state was to bring inordinate firepower to 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 make clear that black people did not have the right to to arms and to defend themselves against a, a, a white mob. Um, we saw that in Atlanta in 1906, for instance. Um, and when we get to uh, the 1960s, uh, one of the things that we, that becomes very clear is that even after uh, black citizenship has been wrung from the United States via the civil rights movement, that citizenship is fractured. Um, it is severely compromised. Um, one of the things that we saw happening was this massive police violence, br police brutality, raining down on black folks in this in this moment, in this era. Um, and in California, in Oakland, uh, the police were brutal. And that gave rise to an organization uh, founded, co-founded by Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale called the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that the Black Panthers did was to police the police. Um, they knew Bobby um, Huey Newton uh, was a law school student. And he knew the, the law, the California statute about the ways that you could openly carry weapons. And so they openly carried their weapons. They knew the distance that they had to maintain from police officers conducting arrest. But the police did not like having the Panthers there. They did not like this open carry that the Black Panthers were doing. And so the Oakland Police Department went to uh, Assemblyman Don Mulford and said, we need some help. We need – because what they're doing is legal. Mm -hmm. It is – they are able <laughs> – the law says they can do this. Every time we stop them, um, they know the law so well that they have the kinds of guns that are legal to carry. And the way that they carry their weapons is also legal. We need to make it illegal. <laughs> and Don Mulford wrote the law with the help of a representative from the NRA, the Mulford Act, that banned the open carrying of weapons. And it was targeted at the Black Panthers. And so one of the key things that you see happening here is that what you don't see are the laws to end the police brutality raining down on the Black community that that called for the Panthers to have the Black Panther Party for self-defense. 
What you do see are the laws designed to make what the Panthers are doing illegal. And again, so important because Governor Reagan, uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, was at the forefront of this in California. And he's, you know, the uh, Republican icon, right? And, and, and look to, again, there's a narrative of him as being this pure conservative who backs everything conservatives back today. And yet, because of this, uh, and because of the attempt to push back against the arming of the Black Panthers, who he called thugs, um, he supported uh, anti-gun legislation. Uh, But it was in the service of keeping black people from uh, bearing or um, uh, exhibiting arms. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and, And so one of the key themes that Um, I follow in this book is the role of anti-blackness, the role of black people as threat, the role of black people as dangerous that must be, you know, they must be contained. They, they must, we must protect whites in this society from these dangerous black people. Um, And that, that anti-blackness has survived the different types of legal status that African-Americans have had from being enslaved to free blacks to denizens, which were that that halfway in between uh, between enslaved and citizen and from emancipated uh, freed people to those living under Jim Crow to those who are living after the civil rights movement that the legal status, the change in legal status, did not change the anti-blackness, the, the sense of black people as threat, as dangerous, mm-hmm. even when they're unarmed. And you write about black Americans who served in the military. One of the rarer incidents where instances where leaders um, allowed the arming of black people But even when fighting for the country, uh, black soldiers faced harassment and prejudice from other soldiers. Oh, absolutely. Um, So and there's a long, long history of this so that the um, during the war for independence, that the colonies had originally banned the enlistment of black soldiers. It was only after the British started having victory after victory after victory, and the U.S. was getting its butt whooped, and that white men were not enlisting at the levels that uh, George Washington um, needed, that the states began to open up enlisting black men um, into the Army. And one of the things that they were doing in the North was promising those who were enslaved, the men who were enslaved, that they would get their freedom by fighting for the colonies, by fighting for this nascent United States of America. Um, So this was our first integrated army. Um, But one of the things that you see is that how tenuous that freedom was. And we get the same thing happening in the War of 1812, 
um, where, again, the British are coming. The British are coming. Um, the U.S. is compelled to enlist black soldiers in this war, but they are treated horribly and they are mustered out as quickly as can be after the war is over. Um, we see this again with the Civil War, where black soldiers were originally banned, black men were originally banned from enlisting in the U.S. Army. And it was the pressure of the war and the pressure from the black community. We want to fight for our freedom. That compelled the U.S. to open up the, the Union Army to black men who comprised up to 10% of the Union forces. But mm. the way that they were treated, um, it was blackness um, that superseded their status as soldier. And we see this again happening after and during the First World War, where, again, their, their treatment was horrific. Um, and, and in fact, their, their status as soldier became a threat. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that was one of the things like in Brownsville, um, Texas in, in 1906, these black men were seen as threats, not as soldiers, not as soldiers in the U.S. Army, but as threats to white society that mm. had to be put down. Wow. It, it, it's you put together um, all of the pieces here that, that, that connect <laughs> that that that, you know, we we see these narratives and then and then we know there's something else. Right. Or we think there's something else. And you went out and you found it. It's so powerful. Everyone. The book is the second race and guns in a fatally unequal America. Professor Carol Anderson is the author and my guest. We're going to talk more about it and a whole bunch of other stuff when we come back in a couple of minutes. The Michelangelo Signorelli Show on Sirius XM. I've been speaking with Carol Anderson, Professor Carol Anderson, Professor of African American Studies at Emory University, who comes on our program so often and is so illuminating. And her new book is interesting, powerful, illuminating. I'm going to use that word again because it just is and so important. It's called The Second Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. And you must read it. Uh, Carol Anderson, I, I, I'm. I'm also thinking about all of this and in and, and sort of as we discuss this history and thinking about what's happening in this country right now where you have the state of Texas um, mm. pushing a law that will allow people to carry guns um, without a license or training openly, right? And South Carolina just passed a similar law. 
And as we're, you know, you put the constellation of events around, as we're seeing this organizing of these white supremacist groups and the insurrection and January 6th, and now this loosening of these laws on guns, again, it gets to the question you uh, really, you know, get at throughout this book about how black people are not afforded this particular right and it just you can see the clashes coming as they um continue to make these laws more and more um reckless and irresponsible in terms of you know allowing people without even a license to carry a gun and how it's going to disproportionately affect african americans um, absolutely and it's one of the things like so as you know in the book i talk about for instance stand your ground um, which is one of those kind of quintessential laws. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what Stand Your Ground does is that it greatly expands the castle doctrine. So the castle doctrine is like if somebody comes into your house that's not supposed to be there, you have the right to defend yourself. You kind of understand that because that's your house. What Stand Your Ground does is it says anywhere where you have a right to be, So if I'm at the park, if I'm at the grocery store, um, if I'm on the street, um, I have a right to be there. And so it has expanded the space around. But the, the key element in that is to say that if you perceive a threat, you have the right to to defend yourself. You have the right to stand your ground in the United States of America. Black people are the default threat. They are the ones that are defined as thugs. Um, they are the ones that are defined as dangerous, as criminals. Um, the, the studies are just voluminous on this about black as threat. And so if it's just the perception of threat, then stand your ground basically puts crosshairs on black folks. And we already see that from um, the studies done by the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights that shows that whites who kill blacks and use the um, stand your ground are 10 times more likely to be fa- for that crime to be found as justifiable homicide than when blacks kill whites, 10 times more likely. And that when whites kill blacks, that it's 281% more likely that this will be found, found as justifiable rather than when whites kill whites. So it is black victim that becomes the, 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 the ticket to ride for Stand Your Ground. Mm. And so these laws that basically unleash, uh, you know, massive weapons buying with no kinds of logical gun safety regulations um, in a society where black is threat. Lord help us. Right. And, 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 and now beyond what these states are doing, we have the Supreme court taking up Mm. a case that will look at Mm -hmm. the scope of the second amendment Uh, in New York, New York rifle uh, and pistol association versus Corlett uh, challenging New York's very um, strict gun laws. And rightly so. I mean, when I think about New York city and I think about the 
um, massive numbers of people that are all in the subway and <laughs> the idea that everybody would be carrying a gun <laughs> is just horrifying. Uh, but but this is what is being challenged. And, and it could result in just seeing all of these laws pretty much uh, fall by the wayside uh, in, in allowing people to arm themselves. And yet, again, it will um, fall on black people uh, as the people who will bear the brunt of it, literally. Right. And, and because, because black is the default threat, is that black gun ownership, um, just like with Philando Castile, um, makes him a double threat. Um, just like with Tamir Rice, who had a toy gun in an open carry state, um, playing in a park by himself. And within two seconds, the police had gunned him down because he was a threat. But Kyle Rittenhouse, the teenager who crossed state lines to um, go to Kenosha, Wisconsin, where there was a protest against the shooting of Jacob Blake, um, where the police welcomed him as he carried his rifle. Um, they offered him water. They said how much they appreciated that he was there. They didn't see threat with this white teenager carrying a rifle. They also didn't see threat after he had gunned down three people, killing two of them and severely wounding another. Um, as he walked towards them with his hands up, they they ignored him. He wasn't a threat. And so this is the the situation that is unfolding in this nation um where white is not a threat but black is and when you have this massive wave of of laws that basically challenge common sense gun safety laws um mm -hmm. it, it 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 portends disaster you know, and the book is coming at a time when we're seeing just a outright um, attack on black people in so many different ways uh, within the states. Uh, and certainly one of them is with regard to guns, and there are several other areas. One is about education and teaching history and Ooh. your book is is giving us this history that's been lost right and uh and telling us filling in the gaps here uh and 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 you know knocking down the false narrative and uh we're now seeing attacks on the 1619 project uh which is about telling the history teaching the history uh, in schools mm -hmm. that has been missing and attacks on critical race theory. And they're really turning this term critical race theory uh, into this very evil term. Tell me your thoughts on the backlash uh, against uh, critical race theory, 1619 Project, all of this, which is really, again, it connects to your book because it's all about teaching history. Right. And, you know, and critical race theory is actually a legal term. It developed um, in the legal profession out of law schools, law professors, um, who were really interrogating the way that race has shaped the law. 
Um, we should care about the way that race has shaped the law. When we think about our criminal justice system, when we think about our housing policies, when we think about um, our education system, race and the law are absolutely inflected in that. Um, we can't understand what our, our legal system is doing unless we understand the way that race works in it. Um, but the, the backlash, again, they don't even know what it is, um, but they hear critical. Ooh, that means you don't like it. Race, whoa, <laughs> boogeyman. Theory, oh, <laughs> nebulous. Um, and so it becomes this, this buzzword like socialism um, that gets thrown around without even knowing what it is. But it is designed as a boogeyman, um, as this thing decide, designed to scare um, and the 1619 Project, and, and I'm in the book that's coming out in November, um, that 1619 Project is one that says it's so important to understand the role of slavery in the development of the United States. It's so important to know this history, and that becomes such a part of the backlash because this is a history that um, – <laughs> really begins to um, challenge or to shape the, the, the standard patent narratives that we have about um, the, the sanctity of the, of the Constitution, the sanctity of the Founding Fathers. The Founding Fathers were grown men, and grown men have things they do really well and things they don't do well at all. But when we ignore that and we create heroes uh, instead of historical actors who are making decisions that affect the quality of life for millions of people, then we have really bad history. It's, it's like you can't have really good therapy unless you tell the truth. Mm -hmm. You don't get better unless you tell the truth. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it is the way that Rick Santorum um, talked about, yes, and so, you know, we came here, to Europeans came here, to America, it was empty land, and we built this. Wow. Oh, that the was land was stunning. not empty. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> there were people here who had thriving communities, <laughs> thriving, a thriving, thriving civilizations, um, and, 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 and But when you tell that history that there was nothing here, then what that does is it creates a narrative that only white men built this nation. Therefore, only white men have the right to access to the resources of this nation. This is where we get into the, that narrative of makers and takers that we hear right. politically deployed. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone yeah. uh, has to read the new book, the second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America by Carol Anderson. Uh, again, uh, illuminating, powerful, and important. Uh, white rage, of course, uh, <laughs> that, that is my go-to for everything. And your last book, One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. I mean, here we are. You, you know, everything mm. you focused on. Here we are now with these laws uh, in the states uh, that have been passed in Florida, in Georgia, in Arizona, and now Texas trying to pass a law where they already had 
horrible, terrible voter restrictions. And those Democrats did such a phenomenal job in just not allowing them to vote. And it's now shined a light on what the Texas law was about. And it's 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 just stunning, this uh, souls to the polls um, thing they were doing where they weren't going to allow the uh, voting on Sunday to start until 1 o'clock, and now they're claiming it was a typo. Now that the light's been turned on, they're saying they meant 11 o'clock, but you can't have a typo with AM and PM. Sorry, I can understand that the one, okay, maybe you meant one, two ones instead of one one, but sorry, it was it was 1 p.m., and now you're saying you meant, mm-hmm. you meant 11 a.m.? This, this is nothing but pure, um, you know, unadulterated suppression of black people yes it it really is and and the 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 language in that law that was an allegation of fraud is enough to overturn an election think about how many allegations we heard coming out of the 2020 election that it was the you know the folks in detroit the folks in milwaukee in atlanta in Uh philadelphia in in phoenix um those allegations are absolutely unfounded but imagine having a law saying the allegations were enough to overturn an election this is um And, and and I've got to say that those allegations were uh, key in the insurrection that happened on January 6th because it was the targeting of these cities that had large or sizable minority populations saying, look at them, steal this from us. Mm-hmm. They're taking our democracy and we're taking it back. It is when black people and folks of color exercise their rights, the response has been what we saw. I mean, we saw it in its, in its kind of hyper form in, on January 6th, but we've seen this before um, at the state and the county level in Colfax, Louisiana in 1873, um, in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898, where Angry white men did not like the results of an election because black folks voted, and so they they stormed the citadels of democracy to overturn that election. Yeah, it, it's it, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it's it's well, and you know they're passing these laws while they're also um, nurturing these conspiracy theories that Mm -hmm. just have metastasized about what was done in the last election. And then we're now seeing, you know, forget about the next election. They're talking about, you saw... Sidney Powell and 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 Michael uh, Flynn, and they're they're talking about um, a coup, and and she's talking about replacing Donald Trump, replacing Joe Biden now, and marching Donald Trump out of the White House, and uh, I'm sorry, marching Joe Biden out of the White House, and Donald Trump being reinstated. Then Trump is apparently telling his. Friends that he's going to be reinstalled in August. Now, 
none of that's going to happen. But the danger of that talk is is it kind of brings it all back again to guns and everything, right? Yes, yes, because underlying this th- this big lie is the reality of the violence that comes underneath it. It is like when, remember during the 2020 uh, election where election workers are counting the votes and they are receiving threats to their lives. Um, that fear, that th- the threat of violence um, is absolutely essential in this right-wing movement to destabilize American democracy, to ensure that we do not have a viable multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious uh, democracy, one that embraces all American citizens. Instead, it is um, a quest to have a, a whites-only democracy, mm-hmm. um, a quest to um, remove. It's like what Paul Weyrich said, who was the co-founder of the Heritage Foundation, and he said it in 1980. He said, you know, all of you, you believe in good government, you're goo-goos, but, you know, because you want everybody to vote. Well, I don't want everybody to vote. Because quite candidly, our leverage goes up as the voting populace goes down. And what we see in the threats of violence, what we see in these voter suppression laws are the attempt to shrink the voting populace, the the electorate down Mm -hmm. so that their leverage goes up. Mm hmm. Wow. Um, We really covered a lot, but I could talk to you for hours. But I, uh, (laughs) Professor Carol Anderson, I I, it was a treat to have you for this amount of time, I have to say, uh, because it's such a critical time right now. And uh, you really do illuminate things. And I, I, I really appreciate your coming on and talking to us. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed this conversation. It's one we had to have. Absolutely. Absolutely. And let's do it some more. (laughs) And we will. (laughs) (laughs) Professor Carol Anderson, folks, the new book is the second race and guns in a fatally unequal America. And of course, you can also uh, and should be following uh, Professor Anderson on Twitter at Prop.